Greetings, everybody. This is a Travel Addict podcast where you can hear candid stories and discussions about business and adventure travel from around the world with activities such as trekking, diving, camping, driving, cruising, and just plain chilling out somewhere. We talk about lots of experiences in places all over the world, including the grand, the remote, the edgy, the risque, and ones of questionable merit. Education, fulfillment, and wonder enrich our lives. And of all the books in the world, the best stories are found between the pages of a passport. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. The Travel Addict here, Malcolm Teasdale. This morning, I am with a Brit, a fellow Brit, Ian Collins from the great country of England. Now, I thought I was bad with travel and going to places off the beaten track, but Ian has some stories to tell which will interest you uh, very much. So stay around, people. Um, It's going to be interesting listening here. Hello, Ian. Are you there? And welcome. Thanks, Malcolm. Great to be with you. And and I think first things first, I'll just correct you in that one. I'm actually Australian. I just happen to be here in London right now uh, and have the benefit of being a dual citizen. So... Um, not Brit by birth, Australian by birth, but based here in London. Okay, cool. I, I'm from Coventry originally, which is a bit a bit further north than you, but I've been over here half my life. Anyway, great to have you uh, with us today. And um, when you sent me information about yourself, I was pretty well intrigued by this based on what you've been doing. So I'm going to start from the beginning. I've got some sort of logical order I want to ask things to you about. You are what we call an international safety and performance coach. And I've never heard that before, I'll be honest with you. Can you tell me what that actually means? Yeah, and so I specialize in a science known as human and organizational performance, which was developed in the aftermath of some pretty significant nuclear incidents, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. And they developed it when they looked at the person, particularly at Three Mile Island, it it looks at how our systems drive behaviour. I've always been fascinated in what makes people tick and most people don't go to work every day to get to try and hurt themselves or hurt others or damage things or, you know, harm the environment. And so we have to agree that, you know, if someone does get hurt, then something must have been going on at the time that had that action make sense to that person. So, What I do is I help companies understand what are those systemic drivers that are having actions make sense to people, but are ultimately leading to these bad outcomes. And at the same time, I teach people how not to make errors, particularly ones that can be catastrophic, such as nuclear plants melting down. So uh, that, and that I came from an oil background myself, mining and, and then eventually offshore oil and gas. And I pivoted into safety just because of some experiences where I, I witnessed a death um, on a nearby vessel and, and that really shocked me. And I saw the opportunity to, to make a bigger impact in the safety space rather than continuing down the drilling track, which, which I was on. And, and, you know, since pivoting into there, just specialised more and more into this, into this science of, of human and organisational performance and particularly pre-COVID got to, got the, privilege to really travel around the world and consult to companies where there is significant risk, so big oil, um, energy companies, utilities, aviation. So it's really helped It's helped me to explore and, and see the world and really work from people from all sorts of different walks of life and, and backgrounds and cultures. 
That's interesting that. I know that that expression to err, E-R-R, is human. Yeah. So we all make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, so it must be challenging at times to well, have the, the qualifications or the experience to guide people. You know, you, this was all avoidable. Was that example Chernobyl, was that avoidable in your opinion? I, I believe it was, yeah. There was, it was with the amount of, and HBO's got a great series where it, it really does look at what all those elements were that were driving that event. And, and those people that were at the panel, there was, there was just so much pressure on them to do that task under duress from their, from their supervisor because they were needing to meet a, a, a test that they hadn't done. And, and there's just so many elements that, that drove the actions that day. Uh, so it's very much a, a, an avoidable uh, incident, and we're still paying the cost for it today. And will be yeah. Probably. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, where is Chernobyl exactly? I think I know, but just tell everyone where it's at. Chernobyl's in Pripyat in in the Ukraine, mm-hmm. and uh, 1986 had this you know, um, explosion that they didn't think was was actually possible. Um, but it's it's and it's costing us billions and billions each year to keep this nuclear reacting, reaction contained. Um, and we will be paying for this for, you know, for a very long time. It's very only got time. a certain lifespan on it, the, the container, and it's, it's, it's costing us. It was a big mistake. Yeah, it's funny because it's been in the news lately, Ukraine has. When September comes, I plan to go on a trip, to a, a scuba diving trip in Asia. But on the way back, I was going to stop off at the Ukraine for a couple of days, just go to Kiev, because it, it fascinates me. And I thought, you know, I wouldn't mind stopping there for a couple of days. But apparently there's been a spat in the next couple of days ago with the with Russia getting involved again a little bit in the US. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Just have to keep your eyes open on that. I don't want to go to any places of danger, especially my age, you know. Uh, yeah. so, uh, I just wonder, because you've been to some risky places in your life, do you find the older you get, the more accepting of challenging places becomes, well, you want to do more with your life or you're going to back off a little? What do you think? I, I think a, a large part of it might, might come down to, what well, I don't have my children of my own right now, but if I had children, I think I'd, I'd view things a bit differently. Yeah. And, and I've been I've been described before as the risk consultant that that likes to live on the edge of risk himself. And yeah. so I if I'm if there's a a risk to me, I'm okay. I'm accepting of that risk. Yeah. Um, as, as long as you know it's obviously managed. But if it was other people that would be impacted by something bad happening, yeah. I'm much more risk averse in that case. Okay. Um, Got it. Yeah. I know what you're saying here. The more the more I do, the more I want to do, and however risky it is, you know. Uh, it is. But your current position, I noticed that you are in a company called Choson, uh, C-H-O-S-O-N. Tell us what that is. Obviously, it's something to do with North Korea, right? Is, it, is that true? Yeah. Explain that because I know you've been to North Korea. Not many people would want to go there, to be honest with you, the vast majority of people, because they could no, find no logical reason to go there. It's intrigued me. I, I wouldn't go there if I was younger like you, maybe, but I got no interest. There's other stuff on my bucket list. So what you practice in is international safety and performance coach. Is that part of the, the uh, your your work, if you will, at Shosong? It, it's actually quite separate. And, and Chosen Exchange itself is a, is a Singapore-based yeah. NGO that, that is all about uh, helping build and, and support a, a community of entrepreneurship. My work that I was doing 
largely led me to discover Chosun Exchange. And it was early 2017 when we traditionally been working with oil companies and the oil price was tanking. And as a management team, we, we said, we need to look outside the box here and our tools are just as applicable anywhere. And so we started thinking outside of, of oil and gas. Uh, and for whatever reason, I was just scrolling through Facebook one day and I don't know how the algorithms work, but I think it's seen me traveling to Libya and, and Pakistan and Saudi and, and the Congo and all these places and just thought, well, obviously North Korea is next for you. And the place had always, it had always fascinated me, but I'd, I'd been a bit cautious about wanting to go there as a tourist because it, it just felt like it would be a, you wouldn't really get to see the country. And when I go somewhere, I really like, I think I'm similar to you in this regard, really like to go off the beaten track a bit and, and immerse myself in the culture. And, yep. and so when I saw this, this ad uh, that said, come and teach entrepreneurship in North Korea, um, I just jumped at it and thought, there's a brilliant idea. Of course I'd do that and basically signed up on the spot. And and I was married at the time and then remember going home and telling my wife and she wasn't thrilled about the idea. Kind of uh, <laughs> I, also, I also neglected to tell my mum. And over the course of that year, that was early 2017, and over the course of that year, things between President Trump and, and Chairman Kim Jong-un yeah. escalated massively and there was talk of fire and fury and calling him the rocket man. And, and you know, the, the threat of nuclear war was, was quite significant. And uh, it, was, it was about a week before I left. And, and I, was, I was with my mum. She she, we're up in Yorkshire, actually. Yeah. Uh, that's where she's from originally. And we're with family up there. And, and because of all this tension with North Korea and the US, it was on the news. And mum just looked at me. I don't know what prompted her. She said, you're not going to North Korea, are you? I think in jest, and I said, well, yeah, mum, there's something I've been meaning to tell you. <laughs> I'm going next week, and I think she'll, I don't know how she didn't have a heart attack in that moment and just said, look, you do whatever you got to do. I know if I went to to North Korea as a tourist, I'd be falsely accused of something, wouldn't be able to get yeah. back out. That, that's my paranoia speaking. Yeah, um, I don't like organized tours myself. Like, like you don't, because I like to do things on my own. But I imagine in a place like North Korea is pretty much like Tibet. You just can't go out and do things on your own. So, But you went there. You went there for a reason. Now, you also said that you sent um, some flowers to Mr. K.J. Un mm. before you left there. And, and that was in a gesture of thank you, I guess, for letting me in your country, or what was that for? It was, it was, so I went in 2017 and then, and it blew me away the impact of the work that Chosen Exchange were doing there. And, and it was a really, I think the thing for me, it really humanized the Koreans. And yeah, it's a, it's a very bizarre system that they're, that they're born into. But at the end of the day, they're, they're just people that want a better life for themselves. So it was a really humanizing impact for me. And I thought, you know, if, if we can connect with people from such an isolated sort of foreign place yeah. and make a difference there, that's the sort of work I want to be involved with. So I became a consultant, associate consultant with Chosun Exchange and led a few tours back there in, in subsequent years. And it was in 2019, it was coming up to the anniversary of, you know, during that time, President Trump and Kim Jong-un had met and uh, President Moon and, and Chairman Kim had met as well. And yep. it was coming up to the anniversary of, of North and South Korea's um, and you know, historic sort of first meeting in, in, yeah. in the Korean War, basically. 
And we got invited to the Minister for Cultural Affairs and International Relations. I can't remember his exact title, uh, but myself and my, my colleague from, from Chosen Exchange got invited along just to go and meet and, and present. Uh, he, he reports directly to the Supreme Leader and we thought in a, a gesture of uh, peace and, and goodwill and we wrote a little card and just said, you know, on behalf of, of us, we'd like to wish you continued uh, you know, prosperity for peace talks and peace on the Korean Peninsula and, and sent this gigantic bouquet of flowers to, to the Supreme Leader. And, and I remember my colleague, after, you know, walking away from that meeting, just sort of turned to me and just said, look, I don't, I don't know what decisions I've made in my life that have led up to this moment, but this is pretty surreal. <laughs> I, I just wondered, I just wondered whether you actually got a, a thank you back or an invite round for afternoon tea or something. Yeah, not not quite. I was hoping that as well. Apparently, we did make it into the local um, North Korean newspaper as a little snippet, not not a picture as such, but just a little uh, words and and you know as part of you know foreign foreign people wishing um, you know the Chairman Kim good health and yeah. you know, it's, look, it's all part of the. I, the I think it's all good and it's it's pretty decent of you to do that and. I'm, I'm sure the people deep down are nice people. The environment they live in may be a bit dubious, but, you know, here in the Western world, we he, don't hear anything good. We just hear the bad things about it. And that's a sad thing. And that's that applies to a lot of countries in the world. You know, what yeah. you read on the news isn't necessarily what the place is like when you get there, right? I, I completely agree with that. And, and that's what uh, really sparked my thirst for traveling adventure and more importantly really immersion in, in cultures and not not you know believing everything that I read in particularly in the in the media and for example my well, the first real expat assignment I had was in Libya way back in um, when Gaddafi was still there and, and in fact I was there oh, really? right yeah. up, up until things really kicked off and we had to sort of get out of Benghazi but it was, I remember going there and, and having read about, you know, Lockerbie bombings and, and just how much of a madman this guy is and, you know, the people are, are brutalised and, sure, is there some of that stuff going on? Yeah, I've got no no question about that. Yeah. But what I experienced on the ground was a very different reality and it really, it really opened my eyes to uh, what we're told in our media and the narrative, you know, that yeah. we're told. And then when you look at a place like North Korea, you know, they've got a particular narrative and yeah. it looks, it looks, you know, we see it from the outside and think, well, how can they believe that? Yeah. But then you look at what we're told and, and you know, is this, is this really true? Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're being fed a narrative as well. So it, yeah, it's one of those things with travel where it just really expands horizons and expands, it certainly expanded my perceptions and and not taking you know taking everything with a bit of a grain of salt. Yeah. Did you make a comment where you said you nearly landed up in jail in Libya? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, what on earth were you doing for that? Probably. Well, not. I was just doing. I was doing my job. That was oh. what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there was a on on board this. We were drilling off the coast of Libya, and, and in fact, I had a few scary close calls in my life, and. Uh, on board this vessel in, in the Mediterranean, I, I had no idea the Mediterranean gets some significant storms and we got, we're, I was on a drill ship and a drill ship's got a, you know, it's a ship and then in the middle of it, you've got a big, what they call a derrick. So it's very top heavy 
and we got smashed by a storm so much so it broke one of our anchors and we turned sideways into this storm oh, Lord. and we're just getting hammered and and you know the the boat was listing at about 19 degrees and it tips at 20 and we were clinging on for dear life I've, I've, I haven't been that scared uh, before uh, but it was one occasion and it was the middle of the night and the Libyans have again you know I had some amazing um, conversations with with these these people that are from a very different culture than me. Yeah. Uh, but on on board the vessel, they had a number of they had a couple of customs officials that you know were there to to inverted commas you know check cargo and and basically they 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 would come onto the rig with no, with nothing, but they would leave with five or six bags worth of stuff. And so they wanted to go and inspect this cargo that was coming on board the vessel. Yeah. From one of our supply ships, and so they wanted to transfer down to the ship in, at three o'clock in the morning, sort of before everyone got up. Yeah, and and it was because you know if they fell overboard, um, basically to transfer someone from ship to ship, you use this thing called a billy pew, and a billy pew is basically a ring donut. Yeah, and you stand on the outside of it, and the crane picks it up. It's got a netting, and you just cling on for dear life. And this thing's flying in the breeze, and there's been some crazy incidents. I don't, I don't know how we're still using those things, but you know the industry does. And they wanted to do that and go down to this vessel at three o'clock in the morning. I just wouldn't let them do it because if they fell overboard, they're gone. We we couldn't yeah. find them in the dark. Safety issue, yeah. Yeah, and they they weren't happy with that, so. I proceeded to get yelled at in Arabic for about half an hour and and threatened threatened with um, not physically a gun, but I know they had a gun on board and um, you know taunts of going to jail and and I just had to sort of take it and stand my ground and it was a it was an amazing and I'd just done a lot of coaching qualifications at the time and we're learning about body language and just yeah. communication and just really you know just without the inability to speak Arabic just sort of calm the situation down to the point where eventually they they relented and actually thanked me for not putting really? that risk. Probably saving some lives in the process as well, maybe. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that's yeah, unbelievable. Well, you survived that uh, that little trip. I just remember one day I was on a cruise ship and I bumped into a British couple who used to live in the country of Iraq mm-hmm. uh, during the time when the, the war took place and President mm. Bush decided to to raid. And I always thought that was a bit sort of dubious at the time because his theory about raiding the country was, wasn't was sort of seemed a bit strange or what wasn't probably really truthful at the time. And they echoed that. They said, yeah, you know, Hussein was a bit of a weird duck, but he kept control um, yeah. from outside interference and the country was under control. And they were quite content there until this raid happened, you know. Yeah. So, obviously, us in the Western world, we hear a completely different story. How, yeah. you know, but that's it is what it is. Okay, so you survived and, that and, little episode in the country of Libya. And, and just on that point, I mean, you look, you look at the countries now, um, and you know, we brought democracy to them, but but you know, they're a shambles compared to what they were under that control. Oh yeah, and certainly my experience. Um, yeah, the, the the Libyans I spoke to, yeah, there's some tight control there, but they get free education, they're getting free health care, they you know, they got they they had a lot of good things happening for them. Yeah. yeah not exactly. anymore. 
Yeah. I think learning about foreign cultures is important because other countries don't act like us. They don't want to. They don't want to behave like this. It's just the way they are, and they're yeah. pretty content in doing so. We're in no position to educate them otherwise. So that's important. Right. Then you went to you went to um, Central Africa or the Congo, right? Now yeah. it's intrigued me because I've gone my. I was going to go there later on this year to Namibia, which that's not central, but it's sort of southwest. And uh, but I did speak to someone recently who did go to the Congo, and they had a, he said he had a wonderful time. Went looking for gorillas. So what, yeah. were you, what were you doing in Congo there? You, you got yourself into a bit of uh, aggravation. Yeah. Well, and the first thing I learned was that there's there's actually two Congos, um, and it was quite funny because I was going with a colleague, and he was he we started this whole visa process and it became very apparent that he was applying for a visa for the different Congo. And, you know, there's the Democratic Republic of Congo where the gorillas are, and then there's Congo Republic, which is on right. the coast. And we were going to Congo Republic to uh, start up a, a drilling campaign there and, and I was going there to, you know, help with the the safety side of it. Yeah. And it was, again, I, I and I was living in Africa at the time. I, I love, I just, I love living and traveling, exploring, working in Africa. And there's just an energy that that's so different about it. There's a chaos, but there's a there's a frenetic energy too. And the Congo is no different. And you know, we landed there and and I mean the first thing that happened it was uh, they said, look, you're running a, a workshop tomorrow. And I'd sort of over embellished how good my French was. Yeah. And I'd studied I'd studied French at school and said, yeah, I studied French for five or six years. Not thinking too much of it, but I think that helped me actually get the get the job. And all of a sudden, I, I landed there, and they said, "You're running a workshop tomorrow for about a hundred Congolese." They said, "Can you do it in French?" And I went, "Oh, <laughs> uh, I can give it a shot, um, but if I get into trouble, you know, is there a will there be a translator?" And they said, "Yeah, but look, if you can do it in French, that'd be amazing. I think the people would be so much more receptive to it." So, yeah. you know, the next day, I get get up the front of the front of this um you know hall is a there's a bunch of Congolese in there all excited and I start presenting in in French and I, I think I lasted about five minutes and I'm trying to talk about um you know risk and safety and and the words were just I could start to see some blank faces so I eventually said look can I get the translator up please and, and this Congolese guy came and stood next to me and I said, you know you're you're ready yeah yeah nods his head and and so I start talking again and after you know a minute or so, I look at him, sort of waiting for him to translate, and he's just staring at me wide eyed. He just said, "I cannot understand you," and my Australian accent was was a bit too strong for him. So we ended up having to get this British guy who was the barge captain on this rig to stand next to me. So I'd say it in Australian, he'd repeat it in the Queen's English, and then this guy'd say it in French. I think it was the longest day of my life. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but, but we took this we. We had to land. We had to go and uh, get this this uh, drilling rig, which was this old barge rig, and they're not the fanciest rigs uh, going around, but they're they're workhorses. And this this rig just happened to be up in Gabon. So the n- next day we flew up to Gabon, and and Gabon's one of those places that was never on my list to go and see. Yeah. But it was it was it was one of the most pleasantly surprising places I think I've ever been to, and. We had a ball in Gabon through it about three days there. Yeah. And just incredible place. Again, that that energy about it. Um, some of the most beautiful people I think I've ever seen in my life. Just this incredible 
beauty. And and obviously there's you know there's a lot of challenges there as well. But uh, I had a ball there, and and we jumped on this rig, and we're sailing down the coast, going very slow. It was about a week to sail back to where we needed yeah. to get. And a few days in, we started to we identified this. Well, we we had this unidentified vessel. Um, sort of approaching us and and the barge captain sort of brought it to everyone's attention. We don't know what this vessel is. And as it came closer, I've never seen a more stealth boat. It was just sort of black. It was pure black and just high, high, um, you know, engines on the back. And this boat just started circling us and it became very apparent, well, this is what modern-day pirates look like. And they just started doing a number of circles around us I think checking us out, checking out, you know, points of access and 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 eventually sort of you know disappeared. And we thought, oh well, we're gonna get it, we're gonna get attacked here at night. And yeah. and on the rig we had, you know, we had one gun in the safe in the safe. Oh, Lord. But that was about it. And you know, we sort of had to come up with a plan. Well, what what do we do here? Um, and that's that was sort of the moment where I learned how much my life was worth and how much my insurance company would pay ransom and and there's things that I never thought I'd have to find out in my life, but but you know, there's that was just the circumstances at the time. So, you know, we were preparing ourselves for for getting boarded at some point yeah. in time and had people at, at nighttime on fire cannons, you know, big fire, um yeah. just to try and you know prevent it. But at the end of the day, you know, they've got heavy um artillery and we we basically had nothing. So it was agreed, you know, if they do come, then we just got to give up what we've got, but I, I think the state of the the rig and its sort of shabbiness, and you know, we didn't have we we, we didn't have any oil, and um, so you know maybe the value and maybe you know risking their life to come on board to get some valuables from people wasn't that appealing. There were much you know there were much better ships that they could take. Yeah, so we never ordered, but I didn't sleep well that week. I can guarantee oh, that. No, of course, no. You just don't know um, because that could have ended badly right there. It could have ended really badly. And, it, and it's one of those things where I look back now, and particularly in light of there's a there's a brilliant documentary just out on Netflix called Sea Spiracy where it looks at the impact on a global scale of commercial fishing. And, again, it's systems-driven behaviour. These, these people don't necessarily want to be pirates, but when you take their livelihood away, what else have they got and, and what are they forced into? It's sad, but it does happen. But I think Africa as a continent is underrated, but it's been developed quite a lot in recent years. Yeah. Ethiopia or the capital Addis Ababa has become a modern city, uh, Luanda and Angola. It's been developed with, I think, a lot of help from the Chinese, actually. A lot of help, um, yeah. And, and my my aim was to go to Namibia, but just camp out in the desert there for a few days. And it's such a gorgeous, it's the oldest desert in the world. I thought, this I have to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was gonna, I was going to do it this year, but basically, I don't know, I'm just put it off till next year. My wife said she wants to go, but not this year. So I've got to listen. I got to go somewhere else. But yeah, it's it's underrated. I like to uh, spend more time there if I can. Probably 2022 is going to be it. I don't know if I'd go to the Congo, though. Mm. Um, if I wanted to absolutely be in the uh, the jungle with the gorillas, I think I'd go to uh, Rwanda, which is, I think, a little bit safer. In yeah, my I agree with that. Yeah. And it's, it's, 
it's interesting and, and sort of sad at the same time what's happening in Africa in terms of that uh, Chinese development. And, and you see it all over. Even you go to somewhere like Namibia, you go to Botswana and yeah, there's a brand new airport in, in a place like Francistown in Botswana. And you're thinking, why is there a new airport here? But it's it's foreign policy. And, and a lot of this, what there was a book that really opened my eyes. It was Confessions of an Economic Hitman by a guy called John Perkins. And he he outlines American foreign policy in places like Iraq, places like, um, you know, attempts in, in Venezuela and, and Ecuador and, and yep. where, you know, we'll go in and, and, you know, offer to build these these massive infrastructure projects that all knowing that they'd never be able to pay back the loan. Yeah. And, okay, well, let's cover some of your resources then. And that was a policy for a long time. And when they tried to do that in, in Iraq and Saddam just went, no, and then you send in the the jackals and try and take the, the leader out that way, and they did that in a you know Panama and a few other places. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the damn being CIA trained, he wasn't having a piece of that. And eventually, you've got to go in with the military. and And I think the Chinese have taken a bit of a, a playbook, you know, a, a lesson from that playbook, and and particularly in in Africa, and not just Africa, it's all around the world. Oh, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When you go. I remember flying out of Francis Town at the airport again, just thinking, what a beautiful new airport. And there's going through passport control, there's a dedicated line to Chinese. And I'm thinking, what? Why is why is that the case? But that's that's the reality of what's happening there right now. Oh, absolutely. Well, if you look at Beijing and uh, Shanghai, they're just ultra modern cities. The building, look, the architecture there is quite unbelievable. You know, they've come a long way, you know, and also what they've done in Singapore as well. Now, some of the buildings there are, are quite spectacular, so you can't underestimate them. It's on my to-do list, but, you know, the older I get, the longer my bucket list gets, yeah. which it should be going the other way, in point, but it's not, you know. <laughs> anyway, some of your activities that you've done, yeah, jumping out of a plane, I get it. I would never do that because mm. I would call it the Teasdale factor. My parachute would not open, right? Yeah. That's me. That's my paranoia. But you did it once and you probably do it again and again and again. No worries there, right? Yeah. yeah to right. the point, the, the second time I actually, um, my, my, I get my sense of adventure from my mum and, and she left She left the UK in the 60s and when Australia was seeking sort of migration and skilled yeah. migration and she jumped on a boat for 10 pounds and became what's known as a 10 pound pom and and came to Australia and, and just never left. And mm. she's always had this sort of sense of adventure, which which I certainly picked up on. So uh, for her, I think it was her 70th or 71st birthday, someone in her sort of lifestyle village um, had been skydiving and she said, well, I'm going to, this sense of competitiveness came out in her. So she said, can you take me skydiving? So I took my mum skydiving. It was it was just such an incredible experience. That How old was she at the time? I think she was 71 at the time. Get out of it. <laughs> and she liked it, yeah. That's she amazing. won't do it again, but, you know, she's done it now. It's sort of ticked off her bucket list. Well, um, for me, yeah, I, I sort of, I, I really do like that, just living right on that edge, whether it's riding motorbikes or, you know, snowboarding or diving with sharks or, you know, whatever it is, um, uh, bobsledding. I, I find that never, never done the bobsledding. Never had a motorbike in my life because I, if I did have a motorbike, I wouldn't be here right now. Yeah, well, to I your point probably. earlier, in terms of as we get older, certainly the the impact of an injury 
is much more prominent in my face now. So my speed coming down a mountain on a snowboard is a lot less than it used to be. I can guarantee that. Okay. Well, that's one thing I want to do. However, the swimming with sharks thing, where was that? That was Cape Town. So I lived, lived in Cape Town. Okay. Yeah, I lived, lived in Cape Town for, for four years and just loved it. It's, and it's oh, one of those- it's famous for um, great whites down there, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, and, and there's some controversy about it, and 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 particularly there was a there was a National Geographic was filming a few years ago, and yeah. and they do a lot of chumming and and you know practices that sort of get the sharks to the surface, and and unfortunately a young young surfer got killed nearby, and they sort of you know put put the bit of the blame on on yeah. National Geographic at the time. So when I went, it was you know we're trying to find it and and ethical as possible company to do it. And it was just breathtaking, you know, to to be that close in their environment. Um, it's haunting. And they just, they come out of nowhere and all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. If, if you like, I don't mind sharks as well. I've, I did the diving at Palau. There's a famous dive site there called Blue Corner where there's hundreds of sharks. They're not great whites, but it's just one of those things where you're surrounded by them. And you say, yeah, this just feels good. But yeah. also, if you die, whale sharks are sort of timid and they're, they're very gentle animals, but these things are met 36 foot long. If you get, I did that in the Philippines. It was a great experience. These yeah. things are just unbelievable to be in the presence of yeah. one of these beautiful animals. But that's. Uh, that's that's quite something, yeah. With uh, great whites, I, I don't know about that. But you've climbed mountains and stuff like that, and been in. What's the active volcano you went in, by the way? You said you went in an active volcano. That's uh, that's Mount Agung in Bali. And oh, okay. It was it was it was one of those experiences where I thought, oh, this is. You know, I've climbed. You know, Kilimanjaro. I used to live in Cape Town, so I hiked every weekend. And looking at this mountain, and I thought, this is going to be a walk in the park, and. And we set off at 10 p.m. at night with the intent of getting up to the, the summit by sunrise. Yeah. And it was one of the hardest hikes I've ever done, mainly because it's it's very loose, sort of sandy. Yeah. Uh, and and I went ridiculously underprepared thinking, well, it's not going to be cold in Bali. And I had like a light sweater and I was frozen up the top. So Oh yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it was it was quite it was surprisingly hard and and it was just yeah. We, I went with a group of eleven, and only seven made the top. And meanwhile, our guide is this, you know, Balinese guy. He's he's wearing a singlet. I think he had a t-shirt on and a sarong and barefoot, and he played guitar the whole way up. Does it all it was, the time? He's used to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's used to that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish I could be back in Bali. I, we, myself and my wife were there well the night before the the Bali bombings took place. Oh wow! We got to Hong Kong, turned on the TV, and said. We just left wow. there. We were the night before with the Hard Rock Cafe in uh, Kuda Beach there, funnily enough, and that that unbelievable. So we dodged a bullet there. But I since went back and stayed at Sanua Beach. I went there on a diving trip, but it's it's a cool place, just culturally rich and uh, it's gorgeous scenery. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it's one of these things I want to go back to. So I know you took plant medicine in the jungle. I can't imagine what you'd be taking. This is this stuff you've – when you say plant medicine, it's just stuff that grows in the jungle wild. Is it or what is it? Yeah, and yeah, I call it medicine. These are uh, I don't want to implicate myself too much here. <laughs> yeah, these are these are um, in the Balinese. Well, not just the Balinese, but you know, traditional um, you know people from that sort of healing background. Yeah, very much 
view things like um, psychosyllabin and, and, you know, a few of the other sort of plant medicines, um, cambo, which is a frog medicine, and really? a few of the things as, as real healing modalities. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot more things happening in mainstream where they're using um, not methamphetamines but, but certain, you know, mush, magic mushrooms, for example, in, in psychotherapy and, and microdosing as, as ways of, of creating new neural pathways and healing. And I think it's becoming more and more mainstream. Um, the use yeah, of it as, probably as should be um, probably yeah. should be. It's like meditation in a. It's not, meditation is, is is a little bit different. You're not taking anything per se, but you're having this experience, and it's been around for centuries, many centuries, oh, yeah. and it can't be wrong because people still practice it today, right? Yeah. It still goes on today and is used as an integral part of people's lives. And the same with some of these these plus medicines. It must do people good because. They're still taking it, right? So exactly, something yeah. in it. But obviously, it might be better than us taking all these over-the-counter drugs, not over-the-counter, but prescription drugs, which may be more harmful to us. I always wondered about that. Um, yeah. anyway. and, and synthetic, you know, synthetic creation of, of drugs versus actually what's occurring naturally in, in the environment. I'm, I'm definitely one for, for natural medicines. Yeah. Oh, I, th- I, th- I think so, yeah. So... Um, well, well, we'll see. But I'm I'm getting up there right now. I don't want to take too many risks with taking eating plants or, yeah. or prescription drugs. I don't like it. You know, I, I avoid it if I can. But yeah, you know, it, it it is what it is. So, what's next on your list of the things to do? Type of thing. I mean, you're back. You're back home now. And but where where you off to next? Uh, it's a good question, and, and it largely depends. Obviously, we're in a very unique environment right now, where where travel is largely being restricted, and yeah. and you know, to a degree, I get to work with people from all over the world just re- remotely. You know, you know, this virtual space, which is not quite the same, but it still gives me a sense of global community. Yeah. Um, I'm in Europe for the foreseeable future. I, I definitely have a, a pattern of of moving every couple of years, so. Uh, I can see myself staying here for a while and exploring more of of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe. It's a it's a part of the world I haven't done much traveling. So as soon as things open up and as things are being delivered more and more remotely, is from a work perspective, the opportunity to to go and sit in Tallinn in Estonia or something for a couple of weeks and and work from there at the same time, you know, exploring the city, I think is is so appealing right now. So. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, you know, the fact you can do it, if you can work remotely, it does enable this to go and stay in a place for a period of time. Exactly. We moved to Singapore in 2007, there on and off for two years, and it was a fabulous experience, learning experience. Yeah. It's just so we could expand the business in Southeast Asia, but it was a cool, wonderful place, by the way, great healthcare system, yeah. uh, no, virtually no crime. You just lived there in safety. It was uh, beautiful. Um, so would we live anywhere else? We thought about going to live in thailand for three months or back yeah. to the old country in the in the cotswolds there there would be a cool thing we don't know but of course we're yeah. in this mess um right now and i have booked to go to raja ampad in indonesia in september people said what's that i said well it's actually a place believe it or not but anyway mm. so to, to come back through eastern europe on the way and I mentioned Ukraine, Slovenia was another place as well which i haven't seen before but they just intrigued me um uh, yeah. So basically, you have a list of places which is probably increasing. You would like to go to. <clears throat> it is. 
Yes. You've lived in a number, which is all all great. And it's I tell you what, I think to me, it's a huge learning experience. And I spent many years just traveling um, on business. And then I sold the business in 2013, but I added Quest to travel to, to more obscure places on the planet. And that's what mm-hmm. I've been doing. So 2020 was horrible for me because I couldn't go anywhere. So I want to ramp it up before I get too darn old to do it, right? And yeah. I think that's a voice we would have for a lot of people is you've got to do it while you can. If you've got ambitions to to uh, go to a foreign country or a foreign land, it's a learning experience above all, and you learn how the people live day to day there. I think it's fascinating and uh, yeah, you have I, experience of that, obviously. Yeah, and I completely agree with you on that. And and I think the only thing I'd add is because we don't know. I mean, no one, no one. I certainly didn't see you know what was happening last year. My yeah, you know, my whole year was basically planned out in in all sorts of different countries, and then yeah. COVID happened, and it was just like that. It would yeah. stop. So you just never know. So I completely agree. Is, is do it while you can, and immerse yourself where possible. But also, you know, really appreciate the the privilege that travel is, because a lot of the planet don't have that opportunity, yeah. and it's something that going to places and you know going to South Africa and go to the townships and really get to see what what life is like for a lot of people and and go to the favelas in brazil you know these these sort of experiences are what have really had me appreciate the you know the it is a is a privilege sort of opportunity that we do have to travel and yeah it is it is a privilege um you're right there and i would also add in i do a bit of work on lecturing on cruise ships these days well not last year but uh we stopped in russia and I wanted to stay overnight in St. Petersburg, Russia. But before I went, I had to get a visa and all that, which is understandable. But before I went there, I read on, on the U.S. government website about going there. And they basically said there was a spat going on between Russia and the U.S. Well, there always is to some degree. And they said, don't go there. Do not go there. And I was thinking, well, I looked on the UK website. I'm a citizen on the UK as well. He said, yeah, everything's fine there, Canada. So I went there, and it was it was brilliant. You know, I felt that the people were friendly. They warmed up to me. And uh, apart from the uh, immigration officers, which they got no sense of humor at all, but once I got past that, it, it was just fine. You know, and it's, and it's a yeah. Unbelievable city, St. Petersburg. I take less notice of the news these days and what the government yeah. websites say because they instill fear. Probably a little I completely too much. agree. Yeah, and 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 a similar experience actually. I was I was helping a a friend drive a car from back from Durban to Cape Town, and, and it's a fairly long, boring drive. And and he said, "Well, let's yeah. let's do something fun along the way." And we sort of looked at the map and and said, "Let's go to Lesotho." And so, uh, yeah, if you're not familiar, Lesotho is a, a small. There's two countries within South Africa: Lesotho and, and Swaziland. Uh, I can't remember what Swaziland's called now, but they just changed their name. But um, and in Lesotho, we sort of looked online and visas and so on, and there was a military coup happening uh, at the time, and there was travel advisory warnings against it. But me, <laughs> my buddy and I thought there's also it's the only place in Africa where you can go snowboarding and. And we called the resort and it just happened to be their last day of having the resort open. They've got this tiny little ski resort in Lesotho. So we got to the border at about midnight and, and people are sort of fleeing out of the country and there's two white guys <laughs> wanting to come in and the border guys just thought, you know what's happening in this country right now? <laughs> like, yeah, 
He said, what are you doing here? I said, we, we want to go snowboarding. And he just sort of shook his head and snapped up. <laughs> That's <laughs> insane. And it was the most your mercenaries or something to start with. I don't know, snowboarding. Yeah, the old snowboard excuse. Yeah, I get that, right? Yeah, just that, that is that is pretty crazy. Drive, isn't it? It was a long drive. Yeah, but that that broke it up, and we stayed the night in. How, how long did the whole that whole trip take? Well, it was a, it was a good four or thirty hours or something like that. Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah. Well, I think we agree there's a lot more in the world to see, and um, we, tr- we try and do it. I think I'm a bit older than you, but, you know, life creeps upon us. There'll be a time, of course, where we won't be able to do this anymore, and yeah. uh, I think we both feel the same, that lying on our deathbed there, and we don't want to have any regrets about doing stuff. I, I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. Okay, yes. that's a good way of putting it. And, of course, we might die on the job as well. You never True. know. Yeah, but it is, yeah, but all used up. I have to remember that one. That's good. All right, Ian, I'll tell you what, um, we got to close in a minute, but if people wanted to get hold of you, uh, what's, have you got your own website or I know they can find you on LinkedIn, but yeah. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn and and my LinkedIn is actually the same as my, my company website. So I, I'm managing director of a company called Safety Coach International. So website safetycoach.com and my LinkedIn is, you know, LinkedIn yeah. safety. So, yeah, please no. please feel free to connect and love connecting with people all over the world. And and for those, once travel does open up, uh, who are interested in coming and teaching entrepreneurship in North Korea and, and having an incredibly unique opportunity to experience that country uh, in a way you just don't get to as a tourist, uh, chosonexchange.org is, is the website there. Yeah, you're um, almost talking me into having this, ambition to go and visit North Korea. And when you say entrepreneurship, just take things about entrepreneurship in North Korea, it's difficult for people to even think about that, why that would even exist in North Korea, because they think it's just lockdown or not lockdown, not because of COVID, but lockdown because it's it's very strict that people just, you know, have to worship the leader or, or whatever it may be. But there must be some element of freedom there to do stuff. Yeah, and, and it's certainly more so now under Chairman Kim Jong-un. Uh, certainly not so much under dear leader Kim Jong-il, and yeah. he was very much a military focus. Yeah. But under, when Kim Jong-un came to power, he promised a dual policy of military expansion plus economic development. Yeah. And and everyone there has a government job or they're in the military, and but they don't make any money from that and they can't rely on public distribution anymore since yeah. the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and famines that, that destroyed the country in, in the 90s. So that yeah. that's when the culture of entrepreneurship was born, when people started side gigs just to trade and barter. Yeah. This whole sort of grey market economy developed. And so under Chairman Kim, Kim Jong-un, they, he sort of legitimised it more and given people the opportunity to develop enterprise for sort of their first time in history. And, and what they lack is education in that area. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, so we sort of fill that gap. How how we initially got in there to begin with, um, I don't know. It's it's still a mystery to me. But we're sort of the only uh, organisation that's that's allowed to go in and and really help develop, um, help them develop economically, focusing on the local market because obviously oh, we well. can't trade internationally. Um, but it's just it's having such an impact on that and the grassroots. And I I see it as as a way to open up dialogue with the international community um, by having that sort of uh, cultural exchange 
And from the from the opportunity to go there, it's just such a unique perspective. And we get to go places that you just don't see as a tourist and it's mm-hmm. and engage with everyday North Koreans. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Education is certainly the key here and it's good for us. It's good for them. Good exactly. all year round. And that's why I try to promote here because I, I do lectures on foreign cultures and I always yeah, try and um, promote the fact that we probably need to learn how the rest of the world works because it gives us an appreciation of, and I, I live in the United States, but you know, I'm happy here, but we don't do everything the best in the world, right? We're not best at everything. We're good at something, but we're not the best. So we could learn, all the countries could learn something from each other. I completely agree. Yeah. All right, Ian, I'm going to let you go, but uh, thanks for joining me. That was very interesting. Some of the work you've done is uh, deserves a lot of credit, especially uh, uh, what you did in uh, North Korea there. The main thing is you're still alive, buddy. You're still alive. Well, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> the main thing. Just stay out of trouble, but, you know, you, you always, you know, think about doing some daring stuff. It's not out of the question for me, And uh, but I wish you well in the future. I'll check out your website as well, time to time, just see how you're getting on and uh, all that. Really appreciate it, Malcolm. Thank you. All right. We'll be in touch, but uh, bye all for right. now, Ian. Take care. Bye. See you. Bye-bye. Many thanks for joining me today. This is Malcolm Teasdale signing off. Before I do, please check out my website, malcolmjteasdale.com, for more information about my travels around the world. Okay, folks, talk to you later. Bye for now. Stay safe. Oh, 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 oh,